We find ourselves in the last chapter of the last letter that Paul wrote that's contained in God's Word. We're in 2 Timothy chapter 4. And we remember that Paul is facing imminent execution in a Roman prison. And in this last chapter, you can really begin to see what is important to him. Paul had left behind this life of respect and power and authority as a Pharisee that was trained under the famed Pharisee Gamaliel. Now, this was a big deal to be under Gamaliel because Gamaliel was the leader of the Jewish governing body, the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was this group of like 71 judges, so think of like a really big Supreme Court, and uh, many were trained from their youth in religious text. And they were the highest ruling uh, body in the land of Israel besides the Roman Empire, which at that time had occupied their country. So Paul would have had a fairly comfortable life, respect, power, authority, if he would have just rejected Jesus. But now he sat in a cold, dark, dirty prison cell. But see, Paul had accepted to follow Jesus, and he never once looked back. He fell in love with the gospel because he didn't invest in this temporary world. Instead, he invested in the next life. He didn't invest in material things. He focused on the next life. He decided to live for the life that lasts longer. And here at this end of his life, proclaiming the gospel that you're going to see is all that mattered to him. So let's take a look at verse 1. Paul says to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. Here's what he says. Here's the charge. Preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. This is Paul's final charge to Timothy. Preach the word. Preach the word. Be ready anytime, convenient or not, like a soldier always ready to move when called upon. He talks about the different uh, types of preaching, rebuke and reprove. That's the negative side of preaching. That's the, the part that says, don't do this, don't do this, the warning. And then there's exhort and teaching. That's the positive side. This is what we need to do. See, preaching is important not because you sitting here and listening to Phil Wayman is important, but because the Bible is important. Did you know the Greek word for preacher means the town herald? That's the guy that used to say, you know, hear ye, hear ye, here's the words of the king. The messenger wasn't important. The message was what was important. So he says, preach the word, herald the word. Give the message of the gospel, the good news. Now, when the herald had exciting news that he was really knew was important, like the birth of a child, the herald would start off the message with this word, gospel. That's what he would start that. He'd say, gospel, gospel, listen up. We've got something great that's happened. We've got something amazing that's happened. It was the good news, and that's what we have, and that's what Paul is saying to Timothy. Herald the message of the good news. Preach the message of the good news. Timothy, because you are going to be tempted to stray away from the Bible and instead 
tell people what they want to hear. Some false teachers are going to draw big crowds. Don't try and compete with them. Stay in your lane. Fulfill your ministry. And yes, they may be popular for a season, but their myths and their uh, false teaching will be found out. So stick to the Bible. Church, we need to be careful when we're under a preacher that only ever makes us feel good about ourselves. Because reprove and rebuke are necessary parts of preaching. Sin, death, and hell are teaching straight from the Bible. See, the purpose of preaching is to change God's people, to move God's people. It's not just an information transfer. It is an opportunity for us to move forward and to change our lives. Verse 3, Paul gives a further warning. He says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. That's a big couple verses right there. The problem, though, is sometimes preachers use these verses as an excuse to be boring, right? Well, people fell asleep today. I guess they can't endure sound teaching. And they just, I'm just too deep for them. Well, that's not the real truth. The truth is that the Bible is not boring. And when it's given the excitement that the text deserves, it will draw people into it. But there are some that simply don't like what the Bible says. They don't like what the Bible says about sin. Well, I don't know if I'd call them sinners. They're just living their truth and being their most authentic self. Who am I to judge, right? They don't like what the Bible says. Or they don't like it when the Bible calls for sacrifice rather than just being comfortable. Or maybe they don't want boundaries in their life and they kick against anything that would protect them from pain and instead they want to do things their way. See, they're offended by what the Bible says, so they seek out preachers that will make the Bible say something different. They want a teacher or a preacher that suits their own passions. But see, don't change what the Bible says. Let the Bible change you. Paul warns Timothy that although it's enticing to change the meaning of Scripture, stay the course Proclaim the word. Don't live for people's opinions. Instead, live for the life that lasts longer. Verse 5, Paul says, As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. The work of evangelism is primarily to unbelievers, And Paul reminds Timothy of the great responsibility that we each have to unbelievers. Paul says, I fulfilled my ministry, and now it's your turn to fulfill your ministry. I endured sacrifice and suffering, and now it's your turn. I don't regret the life I left behind. All the the fame and the power and the prestige of being a Pharisee, all that I left behind, I don't regret that. In fact, I want you to follow in my footsteps. You know those movies where a father sits down with a son, maybe he's working at a factory or at a coal mine or something like that, and he sits down with his son and says, don't, don't do what I did, boy. 
Don't, don't go and waste your life working in the factory. You've seen movies like that, right? Well, that's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, I spent my life. I sacrificed. I suffered. And it's amazing. And you should do the same thing too. He doesn't look back and say, I've wasted all this time like many of us have thought about. He says, I have spent my life for the most amazing reason ever. And you should do the same thing. Follow my steps. Fulfill your ministry. Although it's been hard, it's been worth it. And I know there's no better life for you than the life of following Jesus. And that is absolutely true of every person in this world. There's no better life for you. There is nothing outside of God's will that is better for you than what God has for you. That doesn't mean there's not easier ways to do things. That doesn't mean there's not more exciting things to do every once in a while, but the problem with that excitement is only lasts for a little while, and there's like a lot of things in the world, there's hangover after it, right? Alcohol, uh, impurity, and, and different things. There's always that after time where it's like, oh man, why did I do that? But the things of God aren't like that. There's no hangover in the things of God. He didn't regret what he left behind. Uh, verse 6 goes on. Paul says, and this is awesome. He says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. Paul has said here, my whole life is a sacrifice of worship. My whole life is an act of worship. And just like a drink offering performed in the temple, I have poured myself out for the gospel. I grew up going to tent revivals uh, when I was younger. And uh, you know the whole deal, like a big red and white tent, right, and sawdust on the ground, ladies out in 100-degree weather with uh, dresses past their feet, right? You couldn't even see the feet. That's how modest they were. But there was one night that was something happened that was, that was kind of neat. Uh, they used to take up the offering with a big barrel up at the front of the tent. And you'd come and you'd bring an offering. And one night, a gentleman, older gentleman, walked down that aisle and he uh, slowly came up to the front and he hoisted himself into the barrel. It sounds funny and it's kind of amusing, but this is what he was saying. He was saying, my whole life is an offering. I don't give an offering. I am an offering. And that's what Paul says right here. He says, my whole life is an offering. It's an opportunity. See, too often our God is too small. We, we segment him just to inside these walls. But Paul is saying, all that I am, everything that's in me, I want to give it. And what God wants to use, he can have it. I don't give an offering. I am an offering. You guys say that back with me one time. You ready? I got it up here on this thing. You ready? We'll say it together. How about that? That'd be easier. I don't give an offering. I am an offering. Too often that's what we do is we, we put in our uh, two or three dollars or we put in our tithe and we think, oh, I'm done. I gave. I did it. That's not what God's looking for. He's looking for surrender. You know what surrender means? We use that word a lot. That means you give up. I give up. You got it all. 
In a war, you don't say, you know, wave a white flag and be like, all right, I'll come with you for a couple minutes. Eh, you can have, uh, you know, you can have a little bit of me. No, it's I give up. I give over. Verse 7, one of the most famous uh, set of words that Paul ever said. He says, I've, I've given my life as an offering, and this is the result. I have fought a good fight. I have finished the race, and I've kept the faith. I fought a good fight, I finished the race, and I have kept the faith. The commentator Haley says this about these words. He says, this verse is the grandest utterance of one of the grandest mortal men that have ever lived. This battle-scarred old warrior of the cross, looking back over his long and hard and bitter fight, cries out in exultation, I have won. I fought a good fight. Paul says his life is complete. He had accomplished what his goal was, and be, he did it through uh, relying on God's power. In his feeble body that was beaten down by age and a hard life, he's able to look back on his life and say he didn't quit, even when he faced death and abandonment. He didn't quit. He finished. He kept the faith, and he lived for the life that lasts longer. See, he knew he was destined for the next life of sinlessness and righteousness. And as a man that had considered himself, and he said these words, that he was the chiefest of sinners, the worst of all sinners, he was unbelievably excited about going to a place and, and going into this next part of his life into a place of sinlessness and righteousness. Verse 8, he talks about that. He says, henceforth... There is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. You know, crowns uh, made of olive and laurel branches were handed out in Roman culture at the moments of triumph. Corona triumphalis. You know, like the little Caesar guy has on, right? That olive branch. You guys eat Little Caesars. You don't have to act like you don't. I know they have good pizza around here, but nobody's too good for $5 hot and ready pizza. Praise the Lord. You know, that, that, that crown that they would put on their head. And this was the moment of triumph, and this was a great honor. Whether it was military or athletic or civil excellence, receiving one of these was a great, great privilege. And Paul says, I'm going to receive a crown of righteousness. The full scope of his salvation would be complete, and he would finally no longer have to struggle with sin. He would be righteous. See, there's three parts of salvation. The first is this, justification. That happens at the moment of your salvation, where God looks at you, you accept him, you put your faith on him, and he declares you innocent. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, he declares you innocent once you repent of your sins and put your faith on Jesus Christ. So the first thing happens at the moment of salvation, that's justification. The next part of sal uh, uh, salvation is sanctification. And this is a lifelong process. We're still struggling with this. 
And that's the Holy Spirit helping us work out Christ's righteousness in our life right now. It's practically us putting things to the side and becoming more and more like Christ. That's sanctification. That's a lifelong process. And then this last one, this is the one that Paul is talking about. It's justification, sanctification, and glorification. And that's going to happen the moment you step into heaven. That's when we become like Christ. When Christ's righteousness is finally finished, it's finally accomplished in our lives. When we see him, the Bible says, we will be like him. Paul is so excited to finally see the full scope of his salvation, and we should be too. Yes, we have it all right now, but it's going to be finished that moment we stepped into heaven. Paul next wraps up his letter with some updates on some co-workers in the faith. He knows his days are numbered, and he wants to see Timothy one last time, but we don't know if he ever got there. We don't know if Paul ever had that opportunity to see Timothy before his execution. Verse 9 uh, tells us, do your best to come to me soon. Check out these next words. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. He wanted, he wanted some encouragement. He wanted Timothy to come. Why? Because someone had left him behind and someone had betrayed him. Demas was a close co-worker of Paul's, but he fell in love with the things of this world. He was a fair-weather follower of Christ. When things got uncomfortable, he fled. When he had to sacrifice things of this world, he said, I, I really love the things of this world a little bit more. There's a question for us to ask ourselves. How about us? How about you? Are you in this world just friends? Or are you head over heels in love with this world like Demas was? Verse 11 says, Luke alone is with me. Then he says, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful for me in the ministry. Paul right now only had Luke by his side. And we know Luke. Luke was the one that wrote the Gospel of Luke and also uh, the book of Acts. He was Paul's close friend and physician. But Paul says here, he says, I want to see John Mark. Bring me John Mark. And we know John Mark, too. He wrote the Gospel of Mark. He was the cousin of Barnabas. And while on a previous journey... Mark had forsaken Paul and Jesus, much like Demas had. But the thing different about Mark is he had since proven himself faithful again. And Paul wanted to make things right between him and John Mark. He wanted to see him one last time. Verse 14 says, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Have you ever seen someone with a shirt? I saw this one time. It was a shirt and it said, only God can judge me. I don't think that means what they think it means. Uh, I think that should be something that not that you should be proud of, but you should be scared to death of. This here says that Alexander the coppersmith did the message of Jesus and the gospel great harm and the Lord was going to repay him according to his deeds. That's a scary thing to think about. He says, beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. See, Alexander had betrayed Paul. But Paul knew that God would be his judge. Perhaps this was the same Alexander that uh, Paul had uh, mentioned in 1 Timothy 1.20 that they had to use church discipline on because of his acceptance of false doctrine. We know here that this Alexander for sure was a coppersmith who at those times most likely meant that he was an idol maker. 
And this alone would have given Alexander a reason to want to see Paul's ministry of one God and putting away all graven images and idols. That would have been enough for uh, Alexander to want to see Paul's ministry ended because Paul would have been hurting his pocketbook, right? Alexander was caught up in the things of this world. But Alexander was used later as a witness against Paul in that trial to convict Paul falsely. Verse 16 He says, at my first defense, look at these verses, this is awesome. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. But look at these next seven words. He says, may it not be charged against them. He says, everybody left me behind. He said, I'm all alone, I'm in prison, and everybody left me behind, but wait, May it not be charged against them. So many of his friends had abandoned him, but like Jesus Christ did on the cross, Paul said, Father, forgive them. May it not be charged against them. See, years ago, as a Pharisee, before Paul's conversion, he had taken part in the stoning of the very first martyr, Stephen. He had held the coats of the men that stoned Stephen, and he killed them. And Paul had seen firsthand what radical forgiveness looked like. When Stephen prayed, lying there, bloodied and dying, Stephen prayed these words in Acts 7.60. Lord, do not hold these sins against them. And God answered that prayer. Paul was standing there. Stephen was praying for Paul. Isn't that awesome? He said, lay not these sins against him. And God answered that prayer and radically changed Paul's life. See, Paul prayed that same prayer for those that had deserted him. He knew that his pain that he was feeling right now was temporary, but their life, their next life was eternal. And here's a question for you. Can you pray that prayer for those that have betrayed and abandoned you? Can you pray to God right now, Father, forgive them. Don't hold these sins against them. Lord, may it not be charged against them. Verse 17. But Paul remembers the one person that stuck by him. He said, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Paul was so concerned about the gospel And that it would continue to be proclaimed to those that did not know. Because Paul knew this truth. And remember this truth. That everybody lives forever somewhere. Everybody lives forever somewhere. And Paul was reminded of this. And he cared about the fact that there were people that might not know about the message of Jesus. Even when everyone else had abandoned him, God had stood by his side, and Paul wanted everyone to know a God like that, a God that rescues. It says here that he was rescued from the lion's mouth. We don't know whether that is a reference to Satan, who is a roaring lion that seeketh whom he may devour, or if that was a veiled reference to Nero. But we do know that God rescued Paul over and over and over again from the grips of death. Stonings, shipwrecks, lashings, and snake bites. God rescued Paul, and God can rescue you from the lion's mouth as well. Verse 18 says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed 
and bring me safely into his kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Just like he had been rescued before, uh, God would safely bring him home. And no matter what you have done, no matter what uh, you think is unforgivable, understand this, that God's grace is bigger. So come to him. He wants to rescue you. In closing, here in this last chapter, in the last letter that Paul wrote, Paul reflected back on his life while facing death. And in this last chapter, you can really begin to see what is really important to him. At the end, proclaiming the gospel was really all that mattered to him. Because Paul understood the truth that everybody lives forever somewhere. So Paul says, preach the word, herald the word, give the message of the gospel, the good news. You're going to be tempted to try and please culture and society, but don't do it. Be ready to proclaim the word. Be ready to proclaim Bible truth. Paul had poured out his life as a sacrifice of worship, and it was so worth it. And he wanted the same life for his son in the faith, Timothy. Paul is saying, I don't give an offering, I am an offering. And in his feeble body, beaten down by age and a hard life, he's able to look back and say, I didn't quit. Even when I faced perils, abandonment, and death, he didn't quit. He finished. He persevered. He kept the faith. Paul says, I'm going to receive a crown of righteousness. The full scope of his salvation would finally be complete, and he would finally no longer have to struggle with sin. And just like he'd been uh, rescued before, he knew he was going to be rescued again, and God would bring him safely home. No matter what you've done, God's grace is bigger. Come to him. Receive that rescue. See, like Paul, you probably have a pretty good pedigree too. Maybe you're not the member of the Sanhedrin trained under the famed Gamaliel, But maybe you have a a college education you're pretty proud of. Maybe you've got a job that's pretty decent and you put your identity in that. Maybe you've got a well-known name in the community. See, Paul understood that all of that was ultimately empty. And Paul saw that you could either choose to invest in this life or in the next life. And Paul decided that he was going to live for the life that lasts longer, that life in the next life, the one that's eternal. Paul also told us the life is but a vapor. It's here just for a moment, and then it passes away. Someone once said this, that the value of a life is always measured by how much of it was given away. At funerals, we never celebrate accumulation. Nobody stands around and says, man, he had a Cadillac Escalade. He had a Corvette. Did you see his house? Man, that guy really did it up. No, that's not what people do. They celebrate what they gave away. They celebrate generosity and selflessness. We we may envy that accumulation, but we always celebrate what people did. Life has got to be beyond you, not about you. Have you ever been to a funeral where you knew that the people were really struggling to find something good to say about people? He was a heck of a guy. Man, you should have seen the fish he used to catch. I don't want, to, I don't want that to be me. I don't, want that. I don't want my life's biggest impact that I was a good bowler. 
I don't, which I'm not, but that's good. But I don't want the impact I leave on people's life to be the fact that I could tell a good joke every once in a while or I was a pretty good dude. I want people to know that I gave my life as an offering and I was spent and I was poured out for Christ. And I'm not there yet, but I'm trying to get there. And I know you're not there yet, but let's work towards it. See, Paul offered his life as an offering. He says, I don't give an offering, I am an offering. He gave his life to proclaim the good news to those around him that were broken, living for the now, desperately trying to accumulate for this life and get some type of enjoyment out of this life. See, he knew that everyone lives forever somewhere and he cared enough about the people around them to tell them about the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. He looked back and saw no regrets for following Jesus. He knew the hope and rescue that was found in Christ, and he cared enough about those around him to tell them. He finished well. And church, that's our challenge to us. That's our charge, to pour out our lives for Christ, to look around at the people around us and realize this world has no hope No amount of politics is going to fix what's wrong with this world. No amount of uh, pleasure is going to cover up the pain that's inside of us. The only answer is Jesus Christ. Let's stand on our feet and bow our heads as the worship team comes. This last little section of a service is a time for reflection. This is an action time. This is where we apply it to ourselves. Okay, that's great. This is what Paul did. This is what Timothy did. But what about me? And that's what I want you to do as you close your eyes and just... The great thing about closing your eyes is it's just you then, right? Back when we were kids, we thought we disappeared when we closed our eyes, right? Peekaboo, you can't see me anymore. I'm covered by eyes. And this time of closing our eyes is us reminded that there is an inward man. There is a man inside me that other people can't see. And we can ask ourselves some questions. What about us? The last words of Bob Marley were this, money can't buy life. Money can't buy life. Don't be like Demas. Don't fall in love with this present world. It's only the world we're living in right now. It's not our future. Don't wait till your last words to understand that truth, that money can't buy life, promotion can't buy life, popularity can't buy life. See, Paul was able to look back, and this is very rare, but Paul was able to look back and he saw no regrets because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And he understood that I I don't give an offering, I am an offering. And I need to live for the life that lasts longer. Every head's bowed and eyes closed. The altar's open this morning. God dealt with your heart about anything. You could pray in your your chair. But there's something kind of special about saying, I don't care what people think of me. (laughs) Oh no, they might know that I'm a sinner and I've gotten unfocused at times. Well, that's not true. People come down and pray for all types of reasons. Sick family members and and burdens that they carry. The altar's open this morning. You come now.